Okay, so we're in Titus. The book of Titus. How many of you have ever heard a series through the book of Titus? Okay, we got one, two, okay, three. Okay, so we've three people through the book of Titus. You still have to listen, even if you've already been through, this, through the book of Titus. Uh, but this is, a, this is a book that doesn't get a, its own series very often, but I think it's going to be a, a book that is very helpful to you. And so hopefully by now you're there in the book if you want to be following along with us. There are a ton of scripture passages in the book of Titus that I'm going to reference today. And we're going to be referencing them so fast, it's going to be probably hard to, well, I mean, Titus, if you're there, it's like three chapters. You're not, you don't have to do a lot of flipping, but finding the verse, we're going to be going so fast that it's going to be difficult to even locate the verse. So we're going to have most of those verses on the screen behind me so that you can kind of see them as they pop up. And uh, then you can go back through in your Bible or in your notebooks and kind of underline things as you want to later. But we're going to cover a lot of things in the book of Titus as we introduce the book today. I want to start, though, with a quote uh, by a man by the name of Brennan Manning who wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel and several other books. Uh, Brennan Manning once said this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny Him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, we can quibble over whether that's overstated. How would one measure the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today? But I think there is a good bit of truth in that statement. And there is, I think all of us would probably agree, there is a particular ugliness to a, to a, a, a church or a person, a group of people, a group of Christians or individual Christians who are talking all the time about Jesus, who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but live lives that are in total opposition to the way of Jesus. There's, there's something hypocritical and incredibly ugly about it. It's, it's kind of like trying to listen to a piece of music where one of the instrumentalists or one of the vocalists is really out of tune. Those of you who have been in churches for a good portion of your life know that uh, you can be in church and there's always that one guy or that one girl in church that they are just hitting it with the gusto. They want to they harmonize during every song, but they're just slightly off. And so they're singing with all their... I didn't hear that, but it sounded funny. <laughs> And the Bible does say, make a joyful noise. And so they're doing that loudly. And you're hearing it, and, and when you're hearing it, you're just kind of with your, you kind of scrunch up your eye because it's like, I appreciate the heart behind this, but it's just grating me because they're a half step off the whole time. That's what it looks like, I think, sometimes when 
we as Christians live our lives in such a way that is out of harmony with the gospel. Where we claim with our lips that we're followers of Jesus, but our lives tell a very different story, a sometimes ugly story. Well, today we're going to begin a probably 12-week series, I never know, but probably a 12-week series through the book of Titus, which was written precisely to help Christians avoid a way of being that denies Christ by our lifestyle. This is a letter of personal correspondence written by the Apostle Paul to a ministry partner of his named Titus who was working with churches on the island of Crete. If you've never heard of Crete, Crete is an island that is off the coast of the southern coast of Greece. And if you're looking for kind of roughly how big is Crete, it's roughly the size of Delaware, although I think the weather is considerably better in Crete. Crete is absolutely gorgeous. In fact, I've got just one picture To show you of Crete, this is not Crete in Paul's day. I could not find any pictures of Crete in Paul's day. Uh, But this is modern day Crete, and the water is blue. Beaches are everywhere. There are ruins that you can explore, going back to ancient Minoan civilizations. There are Roman ruins there. It is, it is islandy and beachy and fishing, and, and it's just a gorgeous place to ex- explore. Maybe we could put our money together and somehow rent a ship to all do a field trip to Crete for, of course, for uh, learning purposes. But this is, this is where Titus is. And Titus is a man who Paul has mentored. In chapter 1 and verse 4 of this book of Titus, uh, Paul refers to him as my true child in a common faith, which is not a way of being demeaning to him in any way, but as, as looking at him as his son. So this is a letter of personal correspondence to someone that Paul regards to be his true son in the faith. But Titus is more than just somebody that he's mentored. Titus has become, as I said, a ministry partner, a ministry friend. Titus is mentioned eight times in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And in that letter, Paul describes him this way in chapter 8 and verse 23. He says, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. So Paul has this close father-son relationship with Titus in ministry. We also know from Galatians chapter 2 and verse 3 that, that Titus is a Greek. So Titus is a Gentile. Paul is a Jew. Titus is a Gentile, which is a Bible word for anybody that's not a Jew, and they're close ministry partners. We also know why, from this letter, we know why Titus was in Crete. There were several newborn Christian communities here on the island. And chapter 1 and verse 5 of Titus tells us that these newly Christian communities needed to be organized. And so one of the things that Paul wanted his protege, Titus, to do was to appoint elders in every city. 
Elder is just another name for pastor. They're, they're interchangeable terms in the New Testament. So we have these new Christian communities on this island where the gospel has, where the gospel has taken root and these communities are forming. And now that these communities are forming, they need to be organized. And one of Titus' responsibilities is to raise up leaders, shepherds, elders, pastors to care for these communities. So, we call Titus a book because we refer to the different pieces of the Bible as books, but it's just a letter of personal correspondence from Paul, the apostle, to his son in the faith for these purposes. Paul wanted these Christian communities who lived on this beautiful island to truly live the good life. The good life, according to him, is a life that is characterized by good works. It is a life where there's harmony between what we say with our lips and what we do with our lives. And this is a very important issue in this letter. In fact, it's so important that the Apostle Paul, in writing to Titus, uses the word devotion to describe it. As he's wrapping up the letter in the last chapter, he says this in Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, everything that he's written up to this point, which we'll be studying together, but the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. They need to be careful to devote themselves to good works. And he's going to use that language again in verse 14 of Titus chapter 3. Writing to Titus, he says, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. That interesting. Now, this importance of good works cannot be overstated as we look at this letter. And I just want to show you this theme of, of pursuing good works that, that causes this letter to end is saying, make sure you teach them to devote themselves to these things. I want you to see that this theme runs through the entirety of this letter. We'll hit them as quickly as we can, but one of the qualifications for elders, one of the qualifications for pastors in Titus chapter 1 and verse 8, according to Paul, is that they must be a lover of good. When we think about the qualifications for pastors, if you're to go on some sort of job board where you're seeing the job descriptions for pastors, it's frankly terrifying what we're asking them to do. Must be able to lead a multi-person leadership team effectively, must be proficient in counseling, must have a high-earned degree from a seminary, must be able to, to exegete any text at any time, must be good interpersonally with people, must be able to, to, to have a... a 
great acumen in building projects, great community organizer, the list of all of these skills goes on and on and on. And I think, who could, I don't know who's getting these jobs. None of those things are necessarily bad things in and of themselves. Okay, we need, we need pastors who are, are good at being leaders. So none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but none of those things get mentioned in Titus 1. Instead, one of the qualifications for pastors is that they need to be the kind of people who just love what's good. Older women, walking on thin ice here, okay, the Bible says older women, and it doesn't define, so if I accidentally look at you when I say older women, my eyes are being careful to just scan the crowd. Okay, you, you decide whether you're an older woman or not. But the older woman, women are encouraged in chapter 2 and verse 3 to teach what is good. Titus is encouraged in chapter 2 and verse 7 to be a model of good works. Titus, if you're going to be a Christian leader on this island, if you're going to be helping these fledgling communities come to maturity in Christ, then you cannot just be a teacher. You know, in the pastoral, these are a part of the pastoral epistles. First, Second Timothy, and Titus are referred to as the pastoral epistles because they're written to, uh, to, to pastors. One of the things Paul says elsewhere is that, is that Timothy is to watch his life and doctrine closely. In other words, he's not just supposed to be a person who is good at teaching, but to be a person who has a, a, a life that is connected to that teaching. So Titus in chapter 2 and verse 7 is to be a model of good works. In chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul talks about one of the purposes of Christ's sacrificial death. And here it is. In, chapter, in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, uh, it tells us that God gave Jesus, uh, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So one of the reasons Jesus came was to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify a people for himself, a people who are passionate about doing good. They love good, they teach good, they are devoted to the pursuit of good. And so, in chapter 3 and verse 1, Titus was told to remind the believers to be ready for every good work. So I think I've probably made the case sufficiently enough now. Because then you attack on those last two passages that talk about being devoted to good works. And you can, you can quickly see that that is a theme, it is a thread that is running through this letter from start to finish. As Christians, we are called to live the good life, a life devoted to good works. But I'm afraid that when we see the phrase, devoted to good works, 
when we see how many times good works are mentioned throughout this letter, what we translate it to in our minds is make sure you keep all the rules. And that's what lots of people, Christians and non-Christians alike, think when they think about the Bible or when they think about Christianity. Christianity is about going to church every day and making sure that you write down the new rules of the never-ending rules that we're supposed to keep. But this is where genuine Christianity diverges from our expectations. And I say this because a lot of times I, I read the Bible this way, and maybe you do too. I read the Bible seeing what I expect to see. And I don't sometimes see what it actually says because I go in with an expectation of what I think it says. Have you ever had the, the, the experience of reading the Bible, a passage that you've been through a hundred times, and one day you read it and you're like, oh, it doesn't at all mean what I thought. <laughs> I had this thing all wrong. If we have the eyes to see it, the Apostle Paul paints a different picture from what we're expecting when it comes to good works. And he does it in the very first verse of the greeting. If you're there in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, we'll read the first four verses together. The first four verses say this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Now, there's a lot of stuff in here. But to summarize, we have him addressing Titus, and he refers to the Cretan Christians as God's elect, God's chosen people who had put their faith in the gospel of Jesus. What is the gospel of Jesus? Well, there's a long answer for that and a short answer for that. But the short answer for that is, the gospel of Jesus is the good news that God the Father has sent God the Son to take on human flesh, to live the life of obedience that we have failed to live, to die, offer Himself as a sacrifice on the cross, receiving in Himself the punishment that we deserve for our sins, rising in triumph over sin and death to new life, and then turning and offering forgiveness of sins, cleansing hope for the future, and so many other things to all who receive that gift by faith. That's the quick version. So, these Cretans had received that word. They had believed that gospel. They had responded to the preaching of God's word, and they had possessed the hope of eternal life of God who never lies promised them. You have that hope too if you're a Christian. 
God who never lies, promising you the hope of eternal life. This is their knowledge of the truth that he talks about in verse 1. But Paul speaks about this knowledge of the truth that, he says, accords with godliness. Did you see that? There's a knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. Another translation says, a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. This is important. This is a knowledge of the truth. This is the truth of the gospel. A person that knows that, believes that, uh, puts their trust in that, that starts to produce in them a godliness that is the fruit of that faith relationship. What Paul is saying is that their trust in Jesus is meant to produce a life in harmony with their faith. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. There is this uh, scientific phenomenon that you may have heard about or learned about at one point called sympathetic resonance or sympathetic vibration. Anybody ever heard of that? This is always when I hope that there's no physics people in the room because I'm about to just absolutely butcher this. (laughs) I'm getting way above my knowledge level here. It happens in music. Okay, Uh, a guitar strings resonate and produce a sound. And sometimes when an instrument is is played, a note on one instrument is played, those vibrations will induce vibrations in another instrument that wasn't even touched. It happens with, with tuning forks, where if a tuning fork is struck, if there is another tuning fork nearby that vibrates at the same frequency, and again, please do not ask me questions about this. Okay, it's an illustration for a bigger point. If something is struck that tuning fork is struck and there's one nearby that vibrates at the same frequency, that other tuning fork will start to vibrate even though it hasn't been touched. Now, I can show it to you better than I can explain it. So I got a a brief little, like 24-second video to show you what this looks like that you can run. Except... Okay, so you can, you can see there that that tuning fork with the ping pong ball on it is resonating because of the waves that are coming from that other tuning fork. They are, they are working in harmony with each other, and so what you see there is kind of an interesting phenomenon, but it's called sympathetic resonance. If that tuning fork that's touching the ping pong ball is, is, is tuned at a different frequency, that ping pong ball is not going to move. But this is just a small little illustration that I hope sticks with you of what happens when your heart becomes tuned by the gospel. 
when your heart gets tuned by the gospel, that, that tuned heart to the good news of what Jesus has done starts to make its way out in what your hands do. The heart and hands are connected. What you confess with your lips starts showing up in your life. In fact, the greater we are tuned to what Jesus is doing in us, the more our lives are going to be characterized. They're going to resonate with. They're going to be in this beautiful harmony with what Jesus has done. Do you see that? Now, this idea, this what I'm calling sympathetic resonance is, is all throughout the book. I've given you the first glimpse of it in chapter 1 and verse 1. I'm going to pick two other examples, though I could have chosen others. I'm going to pick two other examples, one from chapter 2 and one from chapter 3. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. We already read this, but I'll read it again. It says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see there now this idea of sympathetic resonance, this this connection between the gospel, which is the good news of what Jesus has done, and our response to the gospel, our living in harmony with the gospel? So many times people think that Christianity is all about the things that you have to do to please God. And if you do enough of those things, God will be pleased with you. But the Bible tells us that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. The Bible does not tell us that Jesus comes and offers himself to those who have, who have who have freed themselves from lawlessness and are good at obeying and good at doing the good works. Jesus comes for the exact opposite people. Jesus shows grace in the gospel to people who are not doing the good works. And this is something that that is made clear in the book of Titus. I'm not going to have it on the screen behind me, but in Titus chapter 3 and verse 3 it says, this is the Apostle Paul, having a conversation between him and Titus, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Those are the kinds of people that Jesus shows grace to. Those are the kinds of people that that Jesus moves in and he starts doing this revolutionary work of grace in the human heart that cannot be done in any other way, that we cannot reform ourselves in any way on our own. And when Jesus begins this this revolutionary work of of grace in our hearts, it starts coming out because our our very lives resonate with Jesus' goodness. Let me give you a, a, a third example from the third chapter. Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. It says, This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things 
so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, when I read that verse to you at the very beginning of the message, I emphasized the fact that that good works are important. And I said, he says here in verse 8, that that God's people are to be devoted to good works. But we may have missed on first read what I want to point out to you on second read, which is the concept of the sympathetic resonance that is in there. Because, he says, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Okay, what this is telling us here is is the pursuit of good works is not necessarily automatic. It's not, you know, here's where the illustration with the tuning fork breaks down. In the illustration that I showed you, that tuning fork is totally passive. It just sits there. You're, You're more than a tuning fork. Put that on the social media. Put that quote on there. That sound that would sound great. You're more than a tuning fork. But no, you're you are a living, breathing, changeful, feeling person. And though this does not just happen automatically, it's not passive, it's something that's active, it is still a response to our faith in Jesus. So the Bible isn't saying, hey, make sure you keep all the rules. And I think that's somehow how we read it. Make sure, it's really important, you keep all the rules. What the Bible instead is calling us to is to live our lives in grateful response to the God who would give His Son to die for us. Those are two very different ways of looking at it. The first one leads to defeat because we will inevitably fail. The second one leads to delight because even when I fail, it was never my works that got me into this in the first place. It was always God's grace. The gospel is a beautiful message. The gospel is the greatest story ever told. And all the great works or many of the great works of literature that have been produced in human history are echoes of the template of the greatest story ever told. The gospel creates in us a life that resonates with that beauty. So if I had to summarize it in one phrase, I'd state it this way. The good life is a life of good works in harmony with the good news. And so in this series, we're going to explore the good life in greater detail. We're going to do something, we're going to explore the book of Titus in a way that we've never explored a book of the Bible before. We are going to work through this book thematically rather than sequentially. Thematically rather than sequentially. This is the kind of letter that would have been read in one sitting. 
like you would read a letter. If somebody sends you a letter or an email, you don't usually spread it out across 12 weeks to read it. You read all the thoughts at once. And there are some very important thoughts in this that need to get this letter that we wouldn't read all at once that we need to load in at the very beginning. So rather than just working our way through it from start to finish, we're going to organize the themes. We're going to cover all the verses, but we're going to cover them thematically. So let me, the out, this, is, this is in the app as well. If you have our app, then this outline is in here so you don't have to feel like you need to write it down. Uh, and if you want to capture it later, you know, you know where you can find it. It's in the notes section of the app. But uh, uh, we're first going to talk about motivation for the good life. Motivation for the good life. We're going to ask the question, let's dig into this a little bit more because I've been talking about how the gospel produces in us this good life, this life of good works. Okay, well, what do you mean by that? What, Bible, what do you mean by that? What specifically about the gospel leads us to joyfully pursue this kind of life? And there are two answers that are given for us that we're going to explore the first is the grace of God in chapter 2, verses 11 and 14. And the second is the goodness of God in, ch- in chapter 3, verses 3 or 4 to 8. The grace of God and the goodness of God are two aspects of the gospel that motivate us in this pursuit. Secondly, with those motivations as our foundational starting point, we are going to take a look at relationships in the good life. So much of your life is tied up in relationships. And the New Testament speaks about those relationships all the time. And so we're going to see in this letter to Titus, we're going to see, first of all, relationships in the church. And we're going to explore the relationship between pastors and the congregation the relationship between older and younger men, and the relationship between older and younger women. We're also going to look at relationships in the workplace. And I'm almost afraid to, to, it's almost funny to me that I'm titling it that, Relationships in the Workplace, because we're talking about relationships between uh, what what the text talks about is is that between indentured servants, bond servants, slaves, and their masters. We're going to talk about relationships in the workplace, and then we're going to talk about relationships in the community and what it looks like when Christians have a godly presence in the community. Then we're going to look at two enemies of the good life. The first enemy of the good life is false teachers, in verses 10 to 16, who would draw us away from the good news of the gospel. And we're going to look at divisive people in verses 9 to 11 who divide churches through harping on things that don't matter. Important enemies of the good life. And all of this is connected. So, we're going to look at the book in its entirety, but we're going to look at it thematically rather than sequentially. I'm almost done. As I've said, the good life is a life of good works in harmony with the good news. And Paul makes that order very clear. 
but I want to make it even more clear just one more time. In Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, the Bible says, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. So, God actually hates works that are done to earn His approval. He loves works that are done in response to His grace. He hates works that, would, that are meant to be offered as payment. So the Bible says, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, that's being counted righteous or considered righteous by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, so the Bible makes it very clear. We are not saved by our works. We do not maintain our salvation by our works. We are saved not because of anything that we have done, but because God, by His very character, by His very nature, is a God of mercy. And every single one of those benefits that I just read off to you, that we've been washed, that we've been renewed, that the Spirit has been poured out on us, we've been considered righteous by His grace, we are heirs of eternal life, and we have the hope of eternal life. None of those things come through anything we've done. They are solely the gift of God in Christ. And So if you are here with us this morning... And that is a new idea to you. We want you to understand that we meant what we said at the beginning of the service. Our church is not a place for people who are perfect. We all have our difficulties and challenges. And if you are a broken person here this morning, we want you to know that you can find rest in Christ. Jesus has done everything necessary to bring you to himself, to give you hope, to change your heart. You need only receive that gift by faith. And we would urge you to call out to Christ this morning, if that's you, and be saved. If you're a Christian, I invite you in this series to ask yourself this question. Is my life being lived in sympathetic resonance with the gospel? And if the answer to that question is no, the answer is not, I better figure out how I can start flicking that ping pong ball. That's the wrong answer. The right answer that's going to change our behavior is going to be, am I living in deep relationship with the Jesus of the gospel? Because the more I do that, the more my heart is tuned to produce the good works that Jesus wants in my life. And friends, 
the good works that Jesus calls us to are not terrible. Sometimes we hear the good works that we're supposed to do and we're like, ugh, okay, give me the list of all the things I don't feel like doing. But the book of Titus is is full of good works like these. Older men teaching their younger men to be self-controlled and loving. Older women teaching younger women to be kind. Employees to be honest. Members of the community to be gentle, easy to get along with, and ready for every good work. Pastors who are not arrogant and domineering in their congregations. This is a life where we all flourish. This is a life of joy. When Jesus is calling us to the good life in the gospel, he is not calling us to something that we just have to grit our teeth and bear until we get to heaven. The good life is something that produces the greatest amount of flourishing in your heart and in the people around you. So let's ask Jesus to tune our hearts that way as we work through this book together. Let's pray. Lord, you are the fount of every blessing as we sing, and only you can tune our hearts to sing your grace. And so, Lord, our prayer is that you would produce in us what we cannot produce in ourselves. That the more we know and love you, and more we receive, the more we receive what you have done for us, that it would produce in us a resonance, a, a harmony, a life that, that says the, the glorious Jesus we talk about really is that way. Lord, if there is somebody here this morning who does not know Christ, somebody who has come here to be in our midst, who has had the idea that Christianity is about all the things that we must do. I pray that you would awaken them to the fact that Christianity is about what you have done. That they would put their faith and their trust in Christ today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.